All right, well, open up your Bible to the book of Malachi. Malachi, it's that last book in the Old Testament. We are continuing through our study of Malachi this morning, and the title that I've given this is More Than Money. Now, as we will look at this, this section that is here in chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, uh, again, we're, we're picking up where Jeremy last week left off, and um, as I told first service, I told Jeremy to uh, not touch verse 6, but he did that anyway, so uh, I don't know if church discipline is necessary or, or what, but um, it, it is really, it's such a, a great verse of Scripture. We're going to spend some time definitely looking at that one, but the, the concept in which we're going to talk about today is more than money, and probably you have heard sermons and maybe a whole host of sermons that is based out of this text dealing with money and really pushing for a tithe and, and giving to the church. And that's kind of been the focal point of a lot of messages. And even in my own case in preaching this, um, this book, that has been even my focus in this text, has been on, um, on giving, on tithing. But as I approached uh, this week in study, as I looked at this passage, um, I was kind of led into a different direction into what is, I think, really here. Yes, this passage is dealing with money, it is dealing with offerings, it is dealing with those kinds of things, but there is something so much more important that I had missed as I had looked at this text before and what I want to do this morning is share that with you this morning, share what I have discovered, and maybe you've already seen it, maybe it's already been there, and good for you, why didn't you share that with me? Don't be so selfish. Um, you no, know, in, into this text, again, we've probably heard multiple sermons, I know I have, and maybe this is going to be different than what you've heard before, maybe not, but uh, I want to jump right into the text that we have in front of us, verse 6 through verse 12, Malachi 3. Chapter, chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions... You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine and the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So a quick flyover of the text, a 30,000-foot view of this text, you would probably gather and probably have gathered that God is upset with his people. Yes, we've seen that already in the book of Malachi, right? But why is he upset now? Again, that quick flyover, you would say, well, he's upset because they're not giving enough. They're not giving enough. Now, this might be where some of you are hoping that the message would not venture into, into the topic of not giving enough. Well, good for you. It's not going to go actually that direction. Uh, I know from my own experience that there has been pastors and churches that um, seem to be just promoting constantly that they want your money, and maybe that's been your experience 
that you've had experience of pastors or churches that have just constantly been promoting that they want your money, needing more money. And it's possible you've had this, I've had this kind of experience, and maybe we could even share stories later about how this has happened. But I do want to say up front, if that has been the case for you, that has been your experience, sorry that that has happened. Sorry that people have uh, acted in such a way and that really should not be the case. That should not be the, the main thrust or uh, teaching of the church or of a pastor. Now, on the surface of this text, yes, God is dealing with a lack of giving, a, a surface-level issue that I think is there is that. But I think this is merely a leaf on the branch of a tree that has decaying roots, I think the lack of giving, it was, a, it was a result of something much deeper, something that's below the surface that needs to be uncovered, and this is what I hope to do this morning is to dig down to see what is the root cause of this giving problem that is there, and this, this lack that was there, or just complete rejection of doing what God had told them to do is really, from the very beginning of Malachi, a theme that we see. And this is what I think I had missed in to my study and my teaching of this passage before, is what is deeper here? What is really going on? So not just the, the flyover effect of what is in this passage, but it's not simply about behavior. And this is the important part that I think we need to see this morning, is that it is not about behavioral change that God is most concerned about, but He is concerned about the change of heart in these people. And the behaviors will come from a change of heart. Look back at verse 6. God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now this should be a very comforting verse for the Israelites. It should be a very comforting verse for us as well. This idea that Malachi clearly states here in 3.6 is that God does not change. In the big million dollar theological word, it would be immutable. God is immutable, meaning he does not change. Now, if you were in our study on the attributes of God several weeks ago, week two actually, uh, Sunday afternoons, four o'clock, shameless plug, um, <clears throat> We have talked through already the immutability of God, the, the fact that God is unchanging. And it's verses like this that we can point to, and I think Malachi 3.6 clearly says it, that this is who God is. This is His nature. Now, if you didn't attend that class, that's unfortunate, because we're not going to spend all of our time this morning talking about that one truth of God and the fact that He is unchanging in His nature but it is critically important that we understand that God is immutable because that leads to the fact that God will not, does not, cannot break his promises, nor can he break his covenant. This is really important for us. And this is so essential to the prophetic word that Malachi has for the people of Israel. So let's break apart verse 6 a little bit here. The first part says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Who's speaking? Well, I, the Lord. That's who is speaking. The one that is speaking is not the prophet. It's not an ambassador to the king, but it is the king of kings himself. Hmm. It's the Almighty God. It is Yahweh that is speaking to his people. 
and let me emphasize that again, his people. They do not belong to someone else. They are not controlled by someone else. They are God's people. Why? Because they are under the covenant that God has established with them, with Jacob. And this is why he gives them the title of, O children of Jacob. This is a reminder to them of who they are and who God is. It should be a reminder to them that God is their Lord. He is their reason for existence. He is the one and only one that is, that is protecting and guiding and directing, preserving them. And this is the reason why they have not been consumed, or maybe your Bible would say destroyed, like the people of Edom. Going back to chapter 1. Why are they here? Because of God. If you go back to chapter 1, look at verse 2. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. Why has Israel been preserved through multiple captivities? Why is it that they as a nation, as a people, are now back in Jerusalem? Why is this happening in Malachi's time? Why are they there because of God and God alone. Again, if you remember kind of the background story of the people of Israel, they had been in captivity there in Babylon, and then there's multiple shifts of power that happened in Babylon. And the Persians are now in charge, but there's a release of the people to go back into their land. And this is about a, about a hundred year time period where Malachi then writes this. So there's been a rebuilding of the temple, there's been a rebuilding of the walls. But now we find similar practices and thoughts and attitudes and heart conditions that these people had as to why they went into the captivity in the first place. If God was a God who changed his mind or could change in some way, then Israel should be really worried and we should be very, very worried as well. But this verse tells us, I think quite clearly, that God does not change his immutable nature. This is so reassuring to us. And this is what the people should remember. And this is why it's stated so clearly for them. Remember who I am. And you should remember who I am by keeping my commands. By following my instruction. Now, the deceptive nature of sin is the subtle sliding away that it creates in us. Thinking back to the Garden of Eden, you remember the storyline there with, with Eve and the serpent and the serpent's posing questions to her, questions of doubt. Doubting God, doubting God's Word, questions like, well, did God really say, or surely God wouldn't do that? This doubt about God and His Word is believing the lie that God would change, that God would change his mind. This verse here in Malachi 3.6, I think makes it abundantly clear that he does not. God's views on sin had not changed. And guess what? God's views still haven't changed about sin. He is still consistent. He is still the same. Sin is still sin. It hasn't changed. Now, a statement like that usually invokes some sort of comment or question about, well, what do we do about the Old Testament laws that we don't follow anymore? 
do we not need to follow these other laws? Or, or to a question of, well, are we, are we just picking and choosing what we want to follow, what we don't want to follow? Is this what we're doing with God's law? Is this the right way that we should approach God's word? Well, when we, whenever we talk about the Old Testament law, I think we need to put an S at the end of that as laws, the laws of the Old Testament. Because there's really three categories of laws as we think of the Old Testament. And again, this is important for you probably to write down in your notes. Three categories of Old Testament law, moral, ceremonial, and civil. Moral, ceremonial, and civil laws. Now, whenever you read the Old Testament, likely what you will find that there is an intermingling of these laws in the books in which you're reading, whether it be Leviticus or, or others, you are going to find that they are not separated out into nice little neat categories for you to go, oh, well, this is all the moral law, this is all the ceremonial law, this is all the civil law. I think a few important points that we need to understand about the laws that we find in Scripture, and I have three things for you here. Number one, number one, moral law does not change. It does not change. Why? Well, Malachi 3.6, God doesn't change. If God changed, that would mean the one that sets the standard for morality could then change morality. But he doesn't change. And so the moral law doesn't change. It is consistent. It doesn't change. His standard for what is holy, what is righteous, what is true has not changed. It will not change. So, number one, about ceremonial, moral, civil law, moral law doesn't change. It's consistent, Old and New Testament. So, 2,000 years ago and today, in 2021, God's moral law hasn't changed. Number two, civil and ceremonial laws point to a deeper moral truth. So, whenever you come across strange laws, as we would classify them in the Old Testament, like shaving the edges of your beard or eating lobster or not, like, what do we do with those? Well, what we should do, first of all, is recognize that all civil and ceremonial laws are pointing to a deeper moral truth. And so, even though we don't practice some of those today, and we don't have time this morning to dig into all the reasons why, but as we look at those laws, we should go, oh, there's a deeper truth that's underneath this. It's not just surface-level, practical, behavioral, tangible things, but it's something deeper that is below the surface of why that is even there. Why did God give that ceremonial law? Why did he give that as a civil law to the people of Israel? A third thing that I think we need to understand about the laws that we find in Scripture is that all three have been kept perfectly in Jesus Christ. Now that is extremely important whenever we think about the atonement for our sin. That we are told in multiple places all throughout Scripture from the beginning to the end that we are sinners in need of a Savior. That there needs to be a, a perfect person presented to God in order to be in his holy presence. And the only one that has ever been perfect has been Jesus Christ. And so when he goes to the cross as an innocent man, dying in the place of guilty people, God looks at that perfect sacrifice, and in that perfection, he attributes to us the righteousness of Christ. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus 
This is a glorious doctrine, a glorious thing for us to understand. And this connects back to the law. So we cannot unhitch or detach ourselves from Old Testament law because if you did, then you would have to deny some things about Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus and what he fulfills in his perfection. And so all three, the moral, the ceremonial, the civil, all of it, all of it is complete in him. And again, we don't have time this morning to dig into all of what that means, all of what that, that indicates to us. That's a whole other sermon that we probably should do. So this book, the book of Malachi that we're looking at, it addresses all three categories. It is addressing all three categories of the laws. But what we need to be careful about doing is not to get bogged down into the ceremonial or into the civil laws that are there. And from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 3 so far, we have seen these three categories of the law but break, the breaking of the civil law and ceremonial laws are evidence of a moral violation. A moral violation. So God, he has not changed in what is required of man to worship him. This has not changed from the garden even till now. It is not changed in what is required of him. Jesus even teaches, right, that to the woman at the well, what is required is to worship God in spirit and truth. That has been consistent, consistent throughout time. God must be worshipped with the sincerity of heart and with the truth. We cannot worship Him any other way. God has not changed. Worship has not changed. So it's not about behaviors or about things that are being brought or not being brought as sacrifices to God. But all of these behaviors, all of these sacrifices, all of these things are reflecting the spiritual condition of the people. So it's, it's not these things that we clearly see as tangible, physical displays of something deeper. It's, it is that thing deeper that I want you to pay attention to this morning. It's this moral condition, this moral condition of the nation that is the problem. These people, in, and the priests, let's not forget about them, that they were worshiping God with a, a corrupt heart. And this created a corruption in the tangible things, the physical things, the behavioral things. Now, if you look at verse 5 in Malachi 3, you, you see, as Jeremy talked about last week, a list of sins that, that are laid out there, and also a promise that God's going to bring judgment for these sinful things. And what you notice about that list is that the, these are reflecting some of the civil and ceremonial issues, but they're also pointing to the moral problems that are there. So into the, the violations that have occur, occurred in verse 5, we could look at one such as not paying a, a, fair, a fair wage to your workers, that that is not the, the real deep-rooted problem. Hey, you just need to pay more. No, you need to care more. That's the problem. There's something deeper than just how much you're paying or ripping off your workers. There's something deeper that is there. And this is helping us start to understand what do we have here when we think of the real issue at work in verses 7 through 10 in this section. So whenever we start to talk about the tithe, we, we have to think of what has already been described to us as really the problem. It's something deeper 
It is more than money that is the problem. It's more than money. More than a percentage of your income. It's more than the argument of gross versus net. It's more than that. Look at verse 7. From the days of our fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Verse 7 is a call to repentance. A call to come back into a right practice, into a right heart. Repentance from what? Well, as it says here, from, they, they need to repent from not keeping his statutes, not keeping his commands. And this is not the first offense that they've had, even though one offense is enough of an offense against a holy God. Their offenses have been ongoing. This is an issue that has been, been a habitual behavior from these people. And why is that? Because of the heart. Because of what's going on inside of them. It says here in the ESV, it says they have turned aside. Uh, what does that mean? Well, maybe a different translation that you might have would say reject or to depart from and this is what they were doing with God's instructions. And whenever you depart from God's instructions, you're really departing from God. You're not trusting Him. It's that same lie in the garden of, well, did God really say? Is it really what He's going to do? It's this doubt of God. They were rejecting, rejecting not just the law that God had given, but they are departing from God. They were embracing their own ideas or their pagan neighbor's ideas and not embracing God's. And here's the fact of life is that whenever someone rejects God's ways, they are always in a sinful way. Every time you reject God's way of doing things, you are embracing a sinful way. It is that black and white. Well, if we're not doing what God wants us to do, the simple definition is sin. That's what sin is. So all of this arguing that goes on today, all, all this talk that goes on today about how people feel or what they think is right, I think all of it could be really easily settled if we just open our Bible and go, well, it says here, God says this is what truth is. This is what morality is. Notice also there in verse 7, he says, return to me and I will return to you. This phrase that is there, so God starts off in the first part of verse 7, uh, calling them to repent, and this, this is part of that phrase that reminds them of the repentance that is needed. Return to me, I will return to you. This is a promise of forgiveness, a promise of restoration, a promise to abide with these people. Now, this is, again, not a new idea or a lost idea that we see in Scripture. Jesus taught this same idea in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, as he talked about being the vine and the branches. You remember that? I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me. This is what we must do. We must, we must commune with God. Return to me, I will return to you. In John 15, we are basically told simply this in verse 5, that you can do nothing apart from God. Now you would say, well, I can do all kinds of things apart from God. I do it all the time. True, you, you do. But you cannot do anything good, righteous, or holy apart from God. You, you can't keep His commandments truly, heartfelt, sincerely apart from God. You can do all the surface-level things. You can put on a really good show. You, you can be deceptive in your behaviors, but 
Will you really please him if your heart is not with him, abiding with him? No. Your relationship with God, it is greatly affected by your obedience. Your behavior, what you're doing, what you're not doing, it will greatly affect your relationship with him. Now, there's a question that the people pose, and it's likely that the people didn't actually say this, but it is the attitude of these people, and it is this question of, well, how shall we return? How shall we return? This is not a genuine response to God. This is really a denial of any kind of guilt in which they had done, any sinful thing. They're basically denying any accusation against them. Well, how shall we return? As if, as if they were saying, we haven't done anything wrong. Why do we need to return to you? Haven't we always been with you? Haven't we always been your people? Hmm. They were rejecting the claim that God had made against them that they were sinful. They, they pushed that aside and they thought, no, that's not us. This is exactly what the priests were doing, right? Chapter 1, chapter 2, this same kind of idea. This is a prideful response to God, not a sincere cry for, for mercy, for grace. And this is why we see in verses 8 through 10 that they bring more condemnation, harsh words to these people. Look at verses 8 and 9. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. So what's happening here in verses 8 and 9? God's getting very, very specific with them of how you have done this. How you have left, how you have dis disregarded my instruction, you've turned aside from my, my uh, statutes. This is how you've done it. You've robbed me. They were robbing God by not giving to him what they had been told to give in their offerings and in their tithes. And so in verses 8 and 9, the, this word rob or robbing, it's repeated. And whenever we see a repetition of things in Scripture, it's an emphasis of something. And the idea that's being emphasized here is the severity of the offense against God. How severe was this? The people, again, are in denial of any wrongdoing. And why is withholding their tithes and offerings being considered as robbing God? Well, those tithes and offerings, they are representative of something. What do they represent? They represent how much worth they attribute to God. Well, whenever we think of worship, that word worship is connected to these words worthy or value. Worship is really the focus of all of this. These people, by not bringing the right thing or the right amount of something, it is reflective of the heart of worship that they had. And so what God is accusing them of is bad worship. Wrong worship. The people's worship, it was corrupted because they were withholding from God what they should have been giving. And not just simply the money or the amount, but their heart. They were robbing God of what was rightfully His. There's a saying that goes, show me your checkbook and I'll show you your God. Hmm. Which means that the heart's worship is revealed by how money and or your resources are handled. How you handle your resources reveals what is most important to you. 
The behavior that you have with what you have shows what you really value as the most important thing. Israel's defection from God was displayed by their lack of giving back to God. And your defection from God will be shown by the same thing. The same kind of behavior will show up in your life. As you defect from God, wander from God, reject, lay aside His statutes, you will find yourself acting just like these people, having the same kind of heart and the same kind of behaviors as these people. In verse 9, God tells them there's a curse that is put upon the nation. The nation. Why? As we read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a lot of this corporate talk that happens in statements like this. The the nation, like this is coming to the nation. Why? Why? I doubt, I doubt that the entire nation was doing what we see described back in chapter 2 where everyone was divorcing their wife and everyone was marrying pagan women. Maybe it was the large majority Maybe there's a lot of them, but what happens to the whole nation because of maybe a few or maybe a lot? The whole nation is under a curse. This unfaithfulness of a few is causing problems to the whole. I think this is a great lesson for us as a church. The unfaithfulness of a few church members will affect the whole church. It's not going to be only in isolation That's not how it works. That's not how sin goes about infecting. We should not be so naive to think that a few sinful actions here and there and this person or over there, that these will not have a large impact upon the whole. This is a repeated theme throughout Scripture. And this is why we need to be, I think, very vigilant against sinful behaviors and practices and deal with these things quickly in the church, or as as quick as we can in the church. Now, again, 7, 8, 9, and 10 is dealing with this idea of of the people giving to God. But again, it's to something deeper. And this is verse 10. Let me take your attention there. Where this passage, 7 through 10 specifically, it has been often pointed to about people giving to the church and tithing to the church. And verse 10 is one of those that is really highlighted in all of this. Verse 10 says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, the prosperity gospel preachers love that verse, and they love it out of context. And that's part of our problem, is whenever we hear preaching that is so centered in on, oh, well, this is, this is what you need to do, because if you give, then God's going to bless, and then look. Well, I, I think there's a few points, a couple here, that really need to be highlighted as we try to understand what is really being said here. One of those being this, is that the context is Israel. That's really important. Israel is our context. Israel has been reestablished as a nation. Again, the Persians are still in control. But Israel, their government, is a theocracy. If you don't know what theocracy means, that means that the religion of the nation is the rule of the nation. There are six theocracies in our world today, five of them being Muslim. The other is located in Vatican City. 
So you can figure that one out. So the theocracy of the nation meant that whatever is being brought into the temple, what is being brought in as tax or offerings, these things, these contributions, they are the reason why the nation is sustained, why the government works. And so these comments here about the tithe and the offerings, the contributions, they're also connected to other taxes that would be in place. And into a, think of a full scale of, of what taxation would be. It's like 23, 25%, I think, of what it all would kind of equate to today of taxes that would be happening there. So the importance of tithing and these offerings, they, they went to the funding and the functionality of the temple. It went to the priest and to the nation itself. And so there, there can be a connection in regards to how a local church maintains its facilities, its staff, its programs that it can perform. It, but that's not necessarily just out of the text itself. It just kind of simple economics. The less that is given, the less you can do. The more that you give, the more that you can do. It's, it's really that simple. So you don't have to use that text to, to make that point of why you should give or why you shouldn't. So there can be this connection that is made with this text, but we should be very careful not to overextend the context of Israel. So to tell people to tithe to a local church would be a little out of the context of what we see in this passage. Also, I think what's important is that the tithe only applied to those who actually owned land, which usually gets left out of the conversation about tithing to your local church. So that's the first thing I think that needs to be understood as we think of this passage of Scripture. The second thing is this, is that a lot of times people make it, pastors make it, churches make it, more about a number than about the heart. Making it more about a number than the heart. The issue of Israel, it was not merely about behavioral or tangible kinds of things. It was something much deeper under the surface. It was a root issue. Not the branch, not the leaf, not the tree, but the, the roots. This is the real problem. There was an issue of the heart, an issue that needed fixed, an issue that needed resolved. This issue of robbing God was displayed through their lack of giving. If we want to simply fix our financial problems in this church, we could, we could focus very heavily and very legalistically upon a percentage of income, like 10%, or 2.5%, which is the amount that is required of Muslims to give once a year, which just so happens to be the percentage that American Christians give to their churches, 2.5%. Did you catch that? that Christians in America are acting like Muslims in their giving, 2.5%. Well, what about others? Well, the Mormons, they are considered to be the most generous people in America, as indicated by several studies that have been done. They require, and require is really important, a 10% or a tithe, as they would call it, for their members. And it has also been proven through studies that they are more generous than other groups religious groups outside of their temples. Christian, do you think those are problems? Do you think that is an issue that we need to resolve? That there, there are groups that worship a false god and they are more generous 
than the people of God where we have experienced so much generosity from him? I think this is a major problem. I think this is an indication of a heart problem. It's not simply just, well, here's the numbers. It's, it's not as if, it's not as if, well, you know, there's not that many Christians in the world, so percentages and, well, let's not even get into that game. And even in the realm of like Southern Baptist churches, like it's, it's a little sad to the numbers in which we have. And I think all of that is evidence of a heart condition, a moral issue. So if, if we wanted to see some of our financial issues just disappear here, then, then we should promote being more like our Mormon neighbors. Being very rigid on tithing to the local church, really pushing for percentages and, and numbers. And, but I believe this would be missing the point of this text completely. A certain number in giving would fix the financial problem, but it wouldn't fix the heart problem. Your giving is not about a certain number, but it is certainly about the heart. It's not about this number that is there, but it is about your heart. Earlier, I explained to you that there are three categories of the law in the Old Testament, which is important to this topic of Malachi 3. As I said, that the civil ceremonial laws, they are pointing to the moral truth. So what's indicated here as, hey, civil law, ceremonial law is not being followed. But really what's happening here is the moral law is not being followed. You are not worshiping me. God alone. Civil law, ceremonial law. It's just indicating something deeper. It's, it's a moral condition of the people. And there's at least, I think, three moral issues that are at play here. You want to write these down. Three moral issues. Humility, generosity, and trust. Humility, generosity, and trust. Humility. Humility is a moral issue that was the problem. When we give back to God, it should be a reminder to us of who he is. He is Lord. He is king. He's the king of kings. He is the great I am. And as we are reminded of that truth, it should bring about a humility in us in remembering who we really are. And we do this, again, and then we demonstrate this by giving gifts. Gifts to him. And understanding that there, there's nothing that we have that is not a direct result of God's abundance of grace and kindness to us. So it, it doesn't matter whether it's a $10 million gift in which you give or a $10 gift in which you give. It is a matter of the heart, and it is a, a humble heart in which you should realize that no matter what dollar amount or percentage it is, that you have that because of God's blessing to you. It is God's gift of grace to you that you have anything in your pocket even if it's more than lint, right? Like, that is God's gift to you. And so giving, it should humble us. Giving should remind us that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. When God tells Israel to bring back in the full tithe in verse 10, it's calling them to humble themselves once again. It is a call to repent, to humble yourself before your Creator, your God, your Lord. And bringing back in the tithe would be an evidence of their repentance and of their self-humiliation before God. 
It's a call to be humble. This is the first moral issue. The second moral issue that is here is generosity, which is the obvious one, right? To be generous in spirit. But generosity is not natural for you, or not likely natural for you. It's something that is so counter, at least to my, my sinful nature, where I'm constantly trying to fight against it, work against it, and work to be generous. Understand this, giving fights greed. Giving fights greed. We have to be purposeful in our giving if we want to fight the greed that is so constantly lurking in our hearts. So let me ask you this question. What strategies do you have to help fight against greed? What do you have in place in your life right now that you would say, hey, this is the thing that I do that helps me fight against greed? And maybe, just maybe, it's not money that you have a problem being greedy about. Quite possibly, it's your time. Quite possibly, it's your talents. Quite possibly, it is your skill sets. Maybe the money thing's really easy for you. Like, you, you're just happy to open up your wallet and throw some money at people. Like, you, you're good. Like, you can do that. But what about these other things? So what strategies do you have in your life to help you fight against that kind of greed? When we think about being generous, the first place we should consider being generous is the local church that we are a part of. Now, I've heard all kinds of things uh, as to why someone doesn't want to do this, that they, they don't want to give to their church first. I've heard things such as, well, I give to other ministries, or the church already has enough money, which is rarely the case. Uh, I, uh, or they say something like, well, the church doesn't really use the money like I think they should use it. And so I don't give as much, or I don't give what I maybe should. Now, I believe each of these and many other excuses that I hear, they are missing the point of the local church. The local church is the reason why other ministries exist. The local church is the reason. Jesus established the church in Matthew chapter 16, and he didn't establish para-ministries. He established the church. The local church is God's strategy to bring the good news of the gospel to the world. It's not missions organizations, even though they're good. It is not parachurch ministries, even though they're good. It is the local church. It starts there. So the reason why we have parachurch ministries, missionary societies, is because of local churches. So let me give you what I think to be the best reason for thinking about your church first in generosity is that the local church should be, let me emphasize, should be the primary place where your spiritual health and growth is occurring. Should be. It should be the primary place where you are receiving teaching and training in holiness. It should be a place where you are receiving accountability for your generosity. And since this should be the primary place where these things are happening, it would only reason to be that it is the primary place where you exercise your generosity first so that there can be accountability to that generosity. Third moral issue that I think is here is the moral issue of trust. Or you could say this, reliance upon God. Do, do these people rely upon God? Do they trust God? No. No. What we see here in Malachi 1, 2, and 3, we see this issue that has plagued Israel for so long and plagues us so constantly, and that is to trust God. 
our trust in the Lord, our reliance upon the Lord, it, it is so important. When we give back to the Lord and when we give to others, we are saying with those gifts, with that generosity, we are saying that I am giving because I'm trusting God. Or at least that's what we should be saying in our hearts. We should be saying, I'm trusting him to provide for me, to be my, 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 not just my creator, but my provider. It is a sign of reliance when we give. So let me ask you, when was the last time that you had, you had to rely upon God? When was the last time this happened? When was the last time that you had to wait for God to prove his faithfulness to you? And I, and I don't simply mean like you had to wait till Friday got here so you got paid. But when was the last time you really had to wait for God to provide? And you were like, I don't know how we're going to do it. I don't know how these things are going to come through. I, I got the stack of bills and I got the stack of cash and I don't know what to do. Or maybe it's in relation to health or, or other things that are going on in your life. Have you given a gift to the Lord that he has not answered back with far more than what you could have even imagined? Has this happened for you? When my family uh, was called to move to Tennessee to serve a small church there, the, the process of that, uh, I just want to share a little bit with you. And when we were called there, uh, Ashley was expecting our fourth. She was pregnant at the time, and she also told me that if I became a senior pastor, that she wasn't working anymore. She just couldn't do that. Just too much going on, and and so she was going to not be working anymore uh, in the in the secular world, but being a stay-at-home mom. And also, this little church that we were going to, they were offering to pay me far less than what I was making even as a youth pastor. So we were. We were going to be well below the poverty line, um, nationally speaking, but also definitely speaking in terms of Middle Tennessee. Uh, the median household income of the county that we were serving was around three, uh, around uh, one hundred thirty-six thousand dollars a year. The median household income, I think it's like thirty-five thousand here. That gives you some concept. So the county that we were serving, it was the wealthiest in the state. We were somehow by God's grace, able to find a house that was in a neighboring county and we could, we could afford it, but we still had to pull from our savings every single month for that first year just to you know, buy groceries and things like that. Well, after our first year, year and a half of being at that church, that church then decided, voted to give me a 40% raise. 40%. I don't know what kind of raises you've got in your past, but that's, that's a lot. 40%. I didn't ask for that. Also, whenever God called us here to independence, the housing market there in Middle Tennessee had skyrocketed, had went through the roof, and property values had increased drastically. Our property specifically increased by 25% in three years. 25%. Why did all this happen? There's one answer. God. It wasn't because, well, Todd's so brilliant. Because y'all have been around me long enough, you know, that ain't true. That's not it. Finally, I got an amen out of Lance. It's not because, well, you know, it strategized so well and bought this property there. And there's no answer. 
real reasonable answer other than God did that? I don't know. Like, why did it happen? Because of who God is. I mean, think, think again of who he is. He, he is the faithful, immutable God. He, he, he has not changed. And so here's something important that I want you to understand from that story is that do not think that we are special. Don't think for a moment that, that God only does things like that for pastors or missionaries or for people in full-time ministry. God is faithful to who? His people. He's faithful to his people when they trust him, which means what? That you put yourself into his hands. You let him guide you and direct you and lead you in a way that one day you will never say, well, I wish I didn't trust him like that. You will never have that experience if you trust the Lord you will not look back one day and go, I wish I didn't do that. I wish I didn't trust him in those things. You will never have that experience. Maybe right now you're going, I don't know about trusting him. I, I don't know. Maybe it's wealth or health. I, I just don't know if I should really trust him. Here's your example, Christian. He's the unchanging God. He is the faithful God. He's promising He's promising to sustain, to protect. This is what we see at the end of this text here. Your view of giving should not be focused on certain dollar amounts or on percentages. That should not be the focus of your giving, of your generosity. Your focus should be on this one question. And I want you to write this question down. And I want you to, we're going to spend some time thinking about this question. This question, what is pleasing and honoring to God? That should be your heart's focus. The other things will come. The other things will quickly be answered. We need to start with this focal point that will help us then determine what is the right amount. What is it that I should give? What should I do? And in the giving, in the sacrifice, you will find a joy in it. Not a heart that is begrudgingly submitting and say, well, I'm required to give 10%. It is a heart that has asked the question, what's pleasing to God? What's honoring to God? And this is how I determine what I should do. The people, the priests of Israel, they were withholding what was due. They were withholding worship from God. They had idolized other things. Not only was this happening in the the amount that was required, but their heart requirement. They were withholding from God. And the root cause that is present in this text is they did not trust God. They were greedy and they were prideful. Are these the root causes of our church's historical struggle to meet financial goals and obligations? Yes. Yes. Those three moral issues are the reasons. So how about we, we stop making excuses about where we live or what we have, what we don't have. And let's start asking ourselves these three heart questions about humility, about generosity, about trust. The, the financial issues that a church has is a moral issue, not a financial issue. That's the problem. 
Look at these last two verses, and we'll be done here. Verse 11 and 12. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. These two verses, they reaffirm the power and the promise of God. Verse 11, I think it makes the point to us that, that we, we don't get to kick our feet up and say, hey, God promised he's going to open the floodgates of heaven and just pour things down on me. I don't have to do anything. God's going to take care of it. No, look at verse 11 again. It does not say that. What you see is a promise, but the promise is attached to something else, and that is there's work to be done, people. Is God going to protect the land? Is he going to provide for the land? Is he going to make things grow and be prosperous in the land? Yes, but also you have a responsibility in the land, meaning that people still have responsibility to do the work. We still have a responsibility to work. We do not get to be lazy Christians. That is not a thing. You don't get to be lazy. Laziness is sinfulness. Now, there is a difference between resting and laziness, and sometimes that's a hard line to discover as you've taken a three-hour nap on Sunday. Anything over an hour is sleeping. It's not napping, okay? Just let me get that out of the way. And somebody's like, no, that's, that's not true, Pastor. Verse 12 Verse 12, notice what else is attached in this promise. Why will the nations say these things? Why will the nations respond like this? Well, it's not because of the people. We've already established they are the problem. But it's because of God. It's because of Him. Why will the land be blessed? Why will it be putting forth a blessing because of a holy God. And because that God in his work, in his people, his people that are humble, that are generous, that are relying upon the Lord, they will display who he is. Why will these nations look at Israel and go, wow, they're blessed. Why would our community look at us and say, wow, they're blessed. It's it's because we would be a humble, generous, and trusting people. We trust in God. We rely upon God. We are generous because he is generous. We are humble because that is required of us to approach him, to be in his presence. Why will the nations say these things because of who God is? Why would our community say these things because of who God is? It needs to be displayed through us. So let's end with these two reflection questions that I want you to spend some time thinking and praying through this morning. Number one, does your life display these three, these three moral things? Humility, generosity, and trust. Is this being displayed, manifested in your life? And the second thing, is that, that focal question for our giving, what is pleasing and honoring to God? Because it's more than money. It's more than money of what pleases him, of what honors him. So if, if you need to, if the Spirit's leading you to, 
to move and come and pray at the front, you want to pray with somebody else, we invite you to do that. Because just as these things that we see in Malachi 3, as they were evidence of a heart condition, maybe, maybe a symbol or a resemblance of your repentance is by you getting out of your seat. Maybe it's in you praying at your seat. Maybe it's by you kneeling at your seat. Whatever the Spirit's leading you to do, and I, I would ask you to be obedient to that. Let's spend just a few moments in reflection, and then I will pray for us.